The streets of Vienna are paved with culture. The streets of other cities with asphalt. Karl Kraus, Austrian writer and journalist. Episode 5 of Brad the Nomad, A Stroll Through Vienna. This is Brad the Nomad, the podcast of an American's eclectic look at the history, culture, and wonders of Europe. And now, Brad the Nomad. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Brad the Nomad. On this episode, we'll be taking a virtual stroll through the historic core of Vienna. Once the imperial seat of one of Europe's greatest empires, Vienna now has to settle for just being the capital of Austria. Although its star has faded politically since the end of World War I, Vienna is a charming, beautiful, and culturally rich city. I had the pleasure of visiting briefly while applying for my long-stay visa for the Czech Republic, and I took the opportunity to take a self-guided walk through its center. I've since explored it a little more in depth, but on this episode, I'd like to retrace my first steps with you. So let's amble down the Ringstrasse and take a quick peek at Imperial Vienna. course was Johann Strauss's Blue Danube, which debuted in Vienna in 1867. Its strong Viennese sentiment has made it the unofficial anthem of Austria, if not Vienna itself. Some brief facts to set the scene before we begin. Vienna is the largest city and capital of Austria. It has a population of approximately 1.7 million people, or one-fifth of the country's population. It has received high marks for livability, culture, and quality of life. We won't really get into a strict history of the city on this podcast. That deserves more research on my part and an episode of its own. But I will say that Vienna is one of the most influential cities in European history, serving as the seat of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the long-ruling Habsburg dynasty, whose palaces still dot the city today. What we're going to be focusing on is what you'd see if you took a walk around the historic heart of Vienna, starting on a grand street known as the Ringstrasse. The Ringstrasse marks what used to be the fortifications surrounding Vienna. Built in the 13th century, the massive walls had held off two incursions by the Ottoman Empire in 1529 and 1683. But by the 19th century, it was obvious that these giant walls were obsolete from a military standpoint. In 1857, Emperor Franz Josef declared, Es ist mein Will, or It is my Will, that the fortifications be torn down. The now cleared land was transformed into a wide circular boulevard around the city's center to showcase the might of the Habsburg dynasty. There was also a military purpose to this as well. The revolutions of 1848 in Paris had shown that the wider the street, the more unlikely it was that revolutionaries could build barricades that could survive a direct military assault. It may be the showpiece of Vienna, but it was also a way to keep the denizens of the city firmly under Habsburg thumb. With that context out of the way, let's get to our stroll. Before we begin, I would like to credit Rick Steves and Gene Openshaw for the route I followed. It's their audio tour, so it's only fair that I cite them. 
Let's say you come up from the U4 train at Karlsplatz, one of the stations of Vienna's metro system. You would be standing on the Ringstrasse. Looking to the northwest, you would see a massive building dominating an entire block. You have come upon the State Opera, one of the city's grandest buildings. Built in 1869, the opera is in what's known as the Neo-Renaissance style. The building has seen a who's who of opera, ranging from Gustav Mahler to Luciano Pavarotti. If you look down, you would see Vienna's own version of the Walk of Fame. Star-shaped rocks with the names of all those who pass through. The inside of the opera is amazing, unless you were Franz Josef. The emperor dismissed the rich interior as overwrought and superfluous. The architect was so devastated, he committed suicide after this imperial diss. Most of the exterior is original, but not the auditorium itself. During World War II, the Opera House took a direct hit from Allied bombing and was essentially gutted. The Viennese took this as a symbolic blow against their city. But like Vienna itself, the opera would rise again, and by November 1955, the rebuilt stage was hosting performances once more. As you continue northwest, you may notice you're passing a cafe named Café Sacre. It was here in 1832 that Franz Sacher first invented the Sacher Torte, the rich, luscious chocolate cake with apricot jam that helps define Vienna's claim as a chocolate city. I can assure you from personal experience that that title is well-deserved, and I can also assure you that the Sacher Torte is amazing. <clears throat> Continuing on the west, you would see a small intersection. This is Albertinplatz. That well-statued building is the Albertina, Vienna's showcase for Impressionist and modern art. It has been augmented, or perhaps scarred, by a modern addition that cynics have dubbed the Diving Board, which sticks out over the neighboring street. Beneath the addition is a sobering memorial to the Austrian victims of Nazism. The Monument Against War and Fascism stands on the site of a building that was destroyed by Allied bombs in World War II. The building's basement was being used as a bomb shelter, and hundreds were killed when the building collapsed. The two tall white sculptures are the Gates of Violence, showing images from the World Wars carved into stone taken from the Mauthausen concentration camp. The crumpled figure before the gates is an elderly Jewish man scrubbing the sidewalk. This is in reference to a famous photo taken shortly after the Germans occupied the city. Jews were forced to scrub the sidewalks with toothbrushes and gather manure with their bare hands. The stone before the gate is inscribed with the text of a declaration that restored the country's basic rights in 1945. Still, Austria was ruled as a divided and occupied country for another 10 years, finally getting independence again in 1955. Taking a right brings one past the historic Tirolhof Café a holdover from Vienna's historic love affair with coffee in a continent threatened with being overrun by Starbucks. It has been said that Vienna's fixation with the pick-me-up started after the Ottoman siege of 1683 was broken, when bags of coffee beans were discovered in the abandoned enemy camp. Whether or not this story is true, the first coffee houses opened a few years after the city survived the siege, and the Viennese do love their coffee. Today, these coffee houses are a focal point of Vienna's cultural life, where denizens gather with a cup of coffee and snacks to discuss or read about current events. Moving on, you would come to Kartnerstrasse, one of Vienna's main streets. Today, it's a pedestrian thoroughfare where performers compete with glitzy stores for the attention of visitors. You may notice that for a city well regarded for its beauty and history, there are a lot of modern buildings mixed in with Vienna's finer facades. Vienna got special attention from Allied bombers during the air campaigns of World War II. 
Winston Churchill himself supposedly wanted to make the Viennese pay for their enthusiastic support of the Nazis. The Soviets storming into a city designated as a fortress city in April 1945 helped as well. When the war ended, over a quarter of Vienna was damaged or destroyed. Take a quick left down Johannesgasse to see one of the architectural gems that survived to the present day, the Kaisergruft. Within this small, unassuming building lie the earthly remains of many of the Habsburg greats, including Maria Theresa, Sisi, Franz Josef, and Josef II. It sits near the end of the Neuenmarkt, an old marketplace where Vienna citizens came to buy fresh food. It's marked by a classically inspired fountain that caused quite a stir when it was unveiled. You may notice that her breast is prominently exposed, pointing our way back to Kartnerstrasse. Walking down Kartnerstrasse a little further, one comes to the crown jewel of historic Vienna, St. Stephen's Cathedral. The large structure was built roughly from 1300 to 1450 and was intended to symbolize Vienna's rise as a great city. It was also intended to steal a little bit of thunder from my adopted hometown of Prague. It was built specifically to be bigger than that city's famed St. Vitus Cathedral. The plan worked, and the massive cathedral earning Vienna her own bishopric helped move the Holy Roman capital from Prague to Vienna. During the Second Ottoman Siege of 1683, the cathedral was hit by artillery fire, and one of the cannonballs lodged itself in the thick walls, where it remains to this day. At the end of World War II, embers from nearby buildings caught the medieval roof on fire, and it partially collapsed from the ensuing blaze. As an expression of their determination to recover from the war, the citizens of Austria joined forces to repair the cathedral, and by 1952, it was as good as new. I would be remiss if I did not mention that St. Stephen saw the marriage of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, perhaps the city's most famous citizen. St. Stephen's really deserves its own podcast, and eventually it will get it. But for now, let's turn our attention to the vast open plaza around it. This is Stephensplatz, the heart of Old Vienna. Named for the imposing cathedral that dominates it, the plaza is the oldest settled part of the city. The Romans erected their first fortifications on the site of the cathedral 2,000 years ago. Some of the old Roman stones were eventually recycled into St. Stephen's entryway. Today, it's where Viennese and tourists alike come to shop, relax, or just enjoy life in the city. Some things, though, never change. You'll still see people painting the cathedral from the plaza, just as you would have in, say, 1907. I chose that year because you may have seen a starving young artist painting the towers of St. Stephen's in the hope of escaping the flop houses with income from his paintings. His name was Adolf Hitler. Let's move on down that wide street to the southwest. This is the Graben. It owes its width to the dimensions of the moat that once protected the Roman fort. By the 19th century, it had been filled in, and it was one of the busiest streets in the city, and many of the Ringstrasse district's 200,000 residents walked it. It was paved early in the 20th century, and in the 1970s, it was made one of Europe's first pedestrian zones. Now, it's one of the city's trendiest shopping areas. However, only 20,000 people now live in this area today. Up ahead, you'll see a massive elaborate obelisk. This is what's known as a plague column. These monuments are built in the aftermath of a plague to celebrate the survival of the city and give thanks to God for showing mercy. 
You'll find them all over Europe, but this is one of the most expressive. The story goes that in 1679, a horrible pestilence swept through the city. 75,000 Viennese, a third of the city's population, fell dead. In desperation, Emperor Leopold I dropped to his knees and begged God for intervention. God heard his prayers, and the plague ebbed. The column celebrates both his moment of humility and the end of the plague in Vienna. The pestilence is represented as that withered old woman being thrown into the abyss by a Cupid and Lady Faith. The column has a wonderful backdrop if you'll look to the north, the grand green dome of St. Peter's Church. Leopold ordered it to be built to further celebrate Vienna's deliverance in 1679. Outside, it's a fine Baroque church, but it's the interior that really wows the viewer. With its massive organ, a finely carved pulpit surrounded by a rose and gold theme, and finally the oval nave above with its breathtaking frescoes, St. Peter's is one of those little treasures that makes Europe great. A hidden gem that somehow escapes attention from the massive tides of tourists. Leaving the church and taking a right, you would find the Kohlmarkt, Vienna's most elegant shopping center. Aptly, it's also the approach to the Hofburg. You can see it looming in the distance down the street. On either side as you approach the former Habsburg Palace are first-rate stores like Cartier and Gucci. But the store I want to draw your attention to is that seemingly insignificant one on the right. The one with all the chocolate on view. That would be Demo. This Art Nouveau monument to sweet stuff is most famous for its edible displays. Those who worry about wasted food would be advised not to hang around after closing. One minute after the doors shut at 7pm, the staff begins dumping all the unsold goodies into the trash. Now we've come to Michaelerplatz, basically the front door to the Hofburg. We'll get to the Hofburg itself momentarily, but first I'd like to draw your attention to the crumbling brick walls in front of you. These are some of the only surviving remnants of Roman Vienna. The walls were part of the original fortifications the Romans built in the area. They've been left exposed for curious people to peer at. Now take a moment to look behind you at the modern-looking building that now hosts a bank. This is the Los House, designed by the modernist architect Adolf Los. He designed the building to be simple, geometric, and basic. It doesn't all like the Hofburg or the State Opera, but it's still Vienna's first, and perhaps finest, modernist building. It's now time for our grand finale, the Hofburg. This vast, sprawling edifice, now a collection of museums, was the former home of the Habsburg dynasty. Having ruled Austria for over centuries, the Habsburg family once oversaw their massive empire from this large building. Or should I say massive building? It's been added to several times over the centuries with various wings and buildings. We're entering through the main entrance, where horse-drawn carriages bearing the cream of society once brought visitors to the family. To the right of the rotunda is an entrance to the imperial apartments. To the left is a nondescript door leading to the Spanish Riding School, and with it, the legendary Lipizzaner Stallions. The main courtyard is dominated by a massive statue of Franz II, grandson of Maria Teresa, grandfather of Franz Josef. He has his back to buildings that used to house his illustrious kin, but now hold the offices and private residences of Austria's Chancellor and President. Finally, the arched passageway to your left takes you to the Heldenplatz, or Hero Square.
Originally intended to be the central plaza to a gigantic new palace, the fall of the Habsburgs ended these ambitious plans. Only one wing was built, and the imposing, curving wall of the new palace marks what was to be. Do you notice that big balcony in the center of the building? It was from there, in March 1938, that Hitler emotionally proclaimed his homeland was now permanently a part of the German Reich. The Führer savored every moment of it. He passionately hated Vienna for his rough years in the city, and he carried that hatred for the rest of his life. Seven years later, in 1945, Austrians would try to argue or justify to themselves that they were the Nazis' first victims. But the massive crowds here greeting him, filling the entire plaza and beyond, suggests that their initial feelings were quite different. Beyond the large statues of Austrian war heroes, the Ottoman defeating Eugene of Savoy and Napoleon fighting Archduke Charles, loom the eclectic spires of Vienna City Hall, which is a stone's throw away from the Austrian parliament. But those are buildings for another time. The final thing I want to draw your attention to is that big gate ahead of us. That would be the outer castle gate. Fierce fighting for the city took place outside of it during the Ottoman siege, and French soldiers blew up the original in 1809. What we're looking at today is a reconstruction ordered by Francis I. That's why his name is emblazoned on the top, proclaiming his rule. During the Nazi occupation, there was talk of not just moving the gate further into Hero Square, but turning it 90 degrees to focus attention on the balcony where Hitler made his proclamation of Anschluss. Obviously, the plan, let alone the logistics of how this was to be done, never came to fruition, and the gate today does not look upon Habsburg might or Nazi rallies, but simply allows pedestrians to leave the Hofburg for the nearby Museumsquartier, which is looked down upon by a large statue of Maria Theresa. Everything from Vermeer paintings to a piece of the Chelyabinsk Nidir can be found in the nearby buildings. Well... That was a nice little walk through the heart of Vienna, wasn't it? At this point, I suggest a cup of tea, coffee, and maybe some soccer tort. Vienna is a lovely, lively, and intriguing city, and I'm sure I'll be back not just physically, but on the podcast. But for the time being, I'll be boarding the bus now back to Prague, the site of our next slice of European history. Until we meet next time, auf Wiedersehen, and happy travels. Mm-hmm.